episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, and Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his group of friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared. They wanted to create a place that treated addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades of experience in treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They make sure if you're kicking dope or heroin or alcohol or cocaine, whatever you're detoxing from, to be as comfortable as possible, which is critical in the beginning of treatment. I know that when I went to detox, I always needed it to be as comfortable as possible. They have amenities that sound amazing, surfing, sweat lodge, fucking equine therapy, sound bath meditation. But the most important thing about aloe is that they're decent people. I've had a bunch of friends who have been there and they always talk about it was a great experience for them and it wasn't about the amenities. It was about the heart of the place. So if you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I strongly recommend going to aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Tiny Footprint Coffee. Tiny Footprint Coffee is the carbon-negative, earth-positive coffee that makes eco-minded coffee-loving simple. When you drink coffee, they plant trees. How cool is that? It takes four pounds of carbon to make a pound of coffee, so they plant 54 pounds worth of carbon-sucking trees, which means 50 pounds of good karma in every pound. Partnered with the Mindo Cloud Forest Foundation in Ecuador, their reforestation efforts along the northwestern Andes help plant native tree species, provide habitat to hundreds of local bird species, reinforce soil conservation techniques, rebuild water tables, and sequester massive amounts of carbon from the air. Plus, 
The coffee is legitimately delicious. It is craft roasted and as nuanced of a cup of coffee as you'll ever taste. Go to tinyfootprintscoffee.com and use the code DOPEY10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase. And the more you buy, the more you save, the bigger your environmental impact. The code even applies to five-pound bags, bulk purchases, and subscriptions, which are awesome gifts for the eco-minded coffee lover in your life. Hit up Tiny Footprint Coffee and take sustainability to the next level, one tasty sip at a time. And I brought it to my dad, who was, again, legit quelling that his son was giving him free pounds of coffee. And we drank Tiny Footprint Coffee together, a father and son, enjoying the incredible nuanced flavor and talking about what an amazing company they are. So if you want some great coffee and help out the environment, go to tinyfootprintcoffee.com and use that code DOPEY10 to save 10%. It would make an amazing Christmas gift. Tiny Footprint. Attention cigarette smokers. There's a less harmful alternative available to you. According to two studies published by Public Health England and the U.S. National Academies of Sciences and Engineering, they found that vaping poses a small fraction of the risks of smoking, and switching to vapes may have substantial benefits over cigarettes. This is why so many cigarette smokers have made the switch to vaping, and their brand of choice is Twist E-Liquids. Twist is an American-owned company that makes its delicious e-liquids in Los Angeles, California. Twist has won several awards for creating mouth-watering flavors such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. But Twist also produces a line of sweet tobacco flavors. Try Twist e-liquids today and get 30% off... That's right, 30% off your first purchase with code DOPEY30, that's D-O-P-E-Y 30, sold exclusively on daddysvapor.com. That's DOPEY30 on daddysvapor.com. Try Twist today and make the switch. If you guys vape, you guys would be idiots not to save 30% at daddysvapor.com. Check it out. All right, we have a new sponsor, super exciting sponsor, Sober Grid, which is an essential way for staying sober. Sober Grid started because the founders were looking for a sober community that could be accessed anytime, anywhere. Today, it is a platform full of evidence-based tools to help anyone get and stay sober. Some join to get support, others join to give it. Each free download, post, and connection creates an opportunity to stay sober while helping others to do the same. SoberGrid is a free app that you can use on your Android or your iPhone. It connects you with other sober people. You're instantly connected to a global sober community in your neighborhood and around the world. You can build strong sober support networks and inspire others. SoberGrid also offers 24-7 certified peer coaches to assist individuals in their recovery. Their peer coaches are trained and certified to help you get and stay sober. It's like the dream social media for an addict or an alcoholic who, who needs support and who wants to be amongst their peers. Go to SoberGrid.com, join up. There's over 300,000 members all over the world. You can find your friends. You can get support, give support, 
free coaching, so much good stuff. Crazy supportive of Dopey and the Dopey Nation. Check out SoberGrid.com. It's totally free. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation. Through the support and the power and the passion and the pathos and the patience of Dopey Patreon. Dopey Patreon has been going crazy. One thing after the next. If you were wondering what happened to my friend Aurora, go on Patreon and listen to a super chill kickback episode from last week. Join at the $2 level, the $5 level, or the $10 level. We also just had the Patreon Zoom stash word competition, which was a lot of fun. Me and Ray hung out with a bunch of dopes, and it was a great time. Next week is DopeyCon 2. There's going to be a shitload of additional Patreon content. Help me get out of the deli. Help support Dopey. It makes it much better. It makes my life better. Support Dopey Patreon. Also, if you want Dopey gear, Christmas is coming up. Go to the Dopey store at dopeypodcast.com. There's tons of amazing stuff. New stuff is always coming out, and it might disappear. So get it while it's there, dopeypodcast.com. All of our stuff is made in Cincinnati by our friends at SRO Prince who are recovering addicts just like you and me, or just like me. Maybe some of you aren't recovering addicts. Also, I still have Dopey Snapbacks. Dopey ski hats, Oyve snapbacks, which are really coming alive in the community, and uh, and stickers. All you have to do is Venmo me. I, I'm trying out some new prototypes of socks. I'm not thrilled with them. I'm trying out new prototypes of ski hats. I am not thrilled with them. Support the show. Venmo me. I'm doing a crazy big ship tomorrow. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I'm joined by my friend Ray, who's back in my dad's house, and he was afraid. We were supposed to come out. He was supposed to come out to Long Island tonight to record with Linda and I, but what happened, Ray? I read too much news. I read California governor said, don't go anywhere. The Rhode Island governor said, stay at home. But we don't live in California, Rhode Island. Well, then I looked up Suffolk County numbers, and I'm like, I don't think this is worth me going out. This is like going to Thanksgiving. You don't think Dopey's worth dying for, you No, say. I don't. Um, the interesting it's worth thing, living for. Well, the fucked up thing is that uh, I went to work. I went to Katz's uh, a few days this week, and... I, I, I cannot resist hugging every Dominican in the place. I have, oh, I have, man, now you tell me this. I didn't hug you. You're six feet apart. I couldn't resist. And uh, I let I, one nuzzle my ear a little bit. I couldn't I, resist. I felt bad because like, we set this up. That it was complicated because Dave's schedule is complicated. And I'm like, okay, I'll come out to your house on Friday night and we'll do all this stuff. And then I'm like, I'm not comfortable with that. But I changed like a meeting with my sponsor for this also, and I had to change that back. Do you feel safe right now? I feel yeah, I feel cool. That's fine. We're in the we moved to the dining room so we can be further apart. The truth is that um, it's a scary, scary, scary time. I've been alone for like I've seen one person in the past week, and did you sixty nine with him on Viagra? No. Are you sure? I'm sure it was a girl. 
Did you 69 with her on Viagra? No, no. What did you do with her? We recorded a song. Oh, yeah, I saw it. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> but then, like, Dave is like, I've been in Katz's all day. And then I'm like, and your kids are in school. And like. Oh, yeah. And uh, Linda's wine tasting. Yeah. Fucking hell. But before we, we I mean, like, so we're in a moment. I mean, I'm and, an idiot. And that vaccine is coming. Now that the vaccine is coming, I'm like, I can't die now. I'm sure that the vaccine is going to kill more people than COVID. <laughs> that uh, would be hilarious. The vaccine is going to turn everybody into like zombies. What if the vaccine killed Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama, and Biden? They're it's, all going to take it together. What if they just drop dead? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that would be the... That would the, be amazing. I have a friend, you know, uh, he, he was on Dopey a bunch of times. His name is Ryan. I call him Conspiracy Theory Ryan. Oh, yeah. He's convinced that... Uh, this is somehow in conjunction with the end of the world that the red heifer is coming. What's and the that, red heifer? I don't know. <laughs> Very confusing. <laughs> but um, supposedly, um, what I mean, like if this was a conspiracy and all those people burst into flames and there was a shadow Illuminati past the actual Illuminati, that would be interesting. I personally uh, have never felt less uh, comfortable with information. You know, I'm not Mr. Fake News, but... Like, I don't, I don't believe anything because how, sh- why should I? Everyone says something so radically different. Right. Unless you see it with your own eyes. It's easier to contend with something that I witness myself. Definitely. Yeah. I had years ago, uh, there, there's an island off Puerto Rico called Vieques and it was a naval base and they used it for test bombing. They would drop like fake bombs. And it's the most beautiful island, the most beautiful beaches. You go to the naval base where they do this fake bombing, and it's the most pristine, beautiful flowers and butterflies and birds. And the New York Times wrote a story, and they were like, I'm sitting on this charred, burned-out island, and there's a butterfly. It's a miracle it can survive. Like, there's millions of butterflies. Well, I mean, that is a shame, and, and uh, I hate that. And that because, was the Times. Because you want Trump to be wrong. You want the Times to be reputable. You want Trump to be wrong. And I'm not going to sit here and say that the Times is some, uh, you know, fountain of fake news. Right. But I'm just saying, with the internet, with... This was before the internet, but that meant a reporter who was on the ground in Vieques was looking around, and either that's what they saw or that's what they wanted to write. And they ended. They got rid of the, the, the naval base. It's now a bird sanctuary. <laughs> so that was the point, right? That was the purpose for that. That was news. the purpose for that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't want this to become some political conversation. No. The point is, COVID is 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 supposedly surging in New York City. Um, I believe it. Healthcare professionals who who I am friendly with tell me, and uh, we need to trust. Uh, as much as we can trust. And uh, and I was making fun of Ray for being such a pussy and not coming to Long Island, but I respect that. And uh, and, and I and I wish I was a little bit smarter and not hugging every Dominican dude. I can't believe you, the people are hugging. My, I cannot help myself. They but come aren't, up, aren't they going, no, dude, don't hug me? They're coming to me. I'm like, no, no. And then if I don't hug them, I'm not a man of the people. Yeah, because you I, haven't seen them in a while. I love those guys. And the love at Katz's around the holiday season is like... Like, it's such a joyful place. And, like, though I, you know, I always said that one, I hated the job, but one day uh, it would be great to leave and come back and have people be happy to see me. And I'm kind of living that experience now. Yeah, you always say how you hate the job, but then you seem to love it a lot. 
I don't love the work, but I really love the people when, and the culture. When I would meet you after work, though, and we would go to your place and watch TV, you were like in a state from having worked there. You were beat. You were like angry and tired. Well, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I would wait tables 60 hours a week or something. I know, I know. Uh, But it was also like the greatest lesson. It was amazing for recovery. You literally, I made a bunch of money, but the real crazy thing about waiting tables is you earn every dollar you make. You're not like not working for part of the time. If you're not working for part of the time, you're not earning money. Right. Which I love that. And, And like for early recovery, it was like, Greatest lesson. It was the greatest lesson. You come on time. You work hard. You you make money off of it. Um, before we go down some stupid rabbit hole, uh, last week uh, a dude who was a you know he was a a member of the Dopey Nation. He was a, a a big supporter of Dopey. His name was Patrick, and he died last week. He actually I think got kicked out of the Dopey Nation because he was a very like opinionated guy. But the thing about Patrick was he was um, European. I think he was French or, or Swiss. And, and he wound up dying, I think, in Spain. But when, um, when Chris was still alive, he wrote us a bunch of times saying how he wanted to set up Dopey in France and do a French version of Dopey. Really? And call it Dopey France. And me and Chris <laughs> were like, you're not doing that. But we also thought it was cool yeah. that he wanted to do it. And it's... Um, you know, he died in his sleep, presumably uh, from some kind of OD. And, um, you know, everybody, anybody out there using should always be aware that you guys could die at any second. And it's a shame. And uh, every episode we do, I think about Chris and Todd, and I think about Andrew, and I think about all the people who have died. Dave Marshall, uh, who the kid what was the kid liam william william fucking patrick it's just a long list and it grows as people fuck with uh fentanyl are there a lot of listeners in france do you hear from them oui oui (laughs) come on ça va ça va bien uh there's there's a a small group of french listeners now including ray's new french boy toy (laughs) oh my god with ray with i don't think he listens let's hope not (laughs) i see ray's got this look of terror on his face um i wanted to talk about love addiction last week and ray's love addiction you, you always want to talk about love addiction and i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a little story about myself okay and 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 we all know that i'm neurotic and obsessive and we all know that I, I lust for fame and for, and for fortune and for greatness, right? Do we know this? Yes. Okay. So lust. I... Lust. Lust. <laughs> so I, um, I don't know. I've been trying to get in a New York City paper for a long time, and I have failed. Actually, we were in the Daily News and the Post oh, when, yeah. when Scout Willis was on. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't really talk about Dopey. They talked about Bruce Willis and Demi Some, Moore. Some, they mentioned... They said, oh, it turns out Bruce Willis and Demi Moore are together. Yeah. We heard it on Dopey. Yeah. But that's not really the kind of mention that I want. And the other day, I was working uh, at Katz's, I think in New Jersey, and I saw this woman friended me, and it turned out she was a reporter for the New York Post. And I oh, was like, score. Oh, ça va. <laughs> ça va bien. And uh, <laughs> so I wrote her, and, um, and she wrote me back, and it turned Je out... Tom. Well, and it... I don't, I don't Come on. <laughs> and it turned out she... Um, I, I asked her if I could pitch her. Yeah. And she said, sure. And then I go nuts. 
right? I have as that. You, as you do. Yeah. So I, I'm, I said, I said, okay, well, when do you want to talk? And she goes, how about tomorrow? And I said, great. I said, and then I said, where do you live? That's what I wrote to her. Yeah. Where, like, like, you don't write no, that to you, some strange no, woman. No, we, what's you know, your email address? Like, no, I said, where do you live? I said, I'll be on the Lower East Side. I work at Katz's. I'll get you a sandwich. And then she didn't write back. And then, I, and then she said, well, I'll, she said, what's your number? I'll call you. No, what happened was she said, what's your number? And I gave her my number. And she said, I'll call you around 10. And then rather than being cool, I said, where do you live? Yeah. And, no. uh, like, and I, I, that, that woman I was singing a song with the other night after we recorded, she's like, every single day I get like two guys, older men, try to friend request me and go, hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, every day I get a girl in a bikini wanting to friend request me. They're like, they're after two different things. But then I told that story to another friend, a female friend. She's like, dude, I get that every day too. And it's funny because whenever I reach out to anyone, I write, hey. <laughs> and, and it's like, and I'm not looking to do anything. Yeah, you can't say, where do you live? You can say email address. Anyway, so I said, where do you live? I work at Katz's. Yeah. I'll get you a sandwich. We could, and, 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 you know, to bribe her for the right, piece. Right. And the next morning comes, right? And it's 10 a.m. And she doesn't call. And I get that panic. Like that I screwed it up. Yeah. And um, and I'm sitting with this woman that I work with just obsessing. Cause like it's not just it's 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 really not that connected to wanting the story in the paper as much as I need to be validated. I need I need this person to respond to me. I, I need that feeling, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then of course I was like, what a loser I am. She's not even going to write back because I was so crazy and said, where do you live? Yeah. And then ultimately, um, she wrote back and we had a really nice conversation. And I pitched her on Dopey and she's pitching it to the post. And she got a pastrami sandwich. She gets nothing because she didn't tell me where she lived. <laughs> but but Ray, um, you do that with these with these boy toys, these international boy toys around the world. <laughs> well. That's very overstated. What? Oh, sorry, Mister Parisian kid. Ray's <laughs> only got eyes for you. You're the only one. He's he's uh you know he's a fan of my music, and we started talking. And but I was talking with my sponsor last night for a long time, like over an hour. And you came up as you often do. That in that situation last year, we're like this this disease. And Brandon Novak said that too, and it reminded me. This disease tells me lies in my own voice, where I was like, "I'm okay with that guy living with me in any capacity, if he's going pursuing other guys, if he's like using me for free rent, I'm okay with that, and that's that will be that will work out somehow." And my sponsor was like, "Dude, that would never work out. Like that was your disease lying to you." Your sponsor told you that. Yeah, and I was like, "That's what Dave said." Well, I, I mean, it's like, but, but I couldn't see that at the time. It's taken a year, so I can see that. Right. It's also just the the classic. You need an external solution to an internal problem. It's classic. That's what Brandon Novak said that too about internal, like working internal. How come you give credit to your sponsor and Brandon Novak and well, I'm sitting yeah, here. Yeah, I know. It's like, I couldn't hear fuck? that stuff. I could not understand a lot of that stuff last year. I was listening to him this morning and I was like, I can understand this. It's interesting. And I can understand it in meetings too. Like all that stuff was, I couldn't understand it before. Well, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, hype around this next piece and um i'm very excited because brandon novak has been around dopey 
for a long time in, in a very like periphery, periphery peripheral, peripheral, way? yeah, peripherally. What's the word I'm looking for? Peripheral. In a peripheral way, and um, he always responds to me, and, and you know, he never leaves me hanging. And sometimes he even texts me very romantic emojis. He's very out there with his phone number. Yes, and um, he's a, he's a kind-hearted soul, and. Um, I had never read his book, so I wanted him to come on the show and me actually be knowledgeable about him. I used to kind of just be starfuckery with him and have him on the show, and he would tell some fucked up stories. But I read his book, and uh, it was awesome to talk to him. But before we talk to Brandon, I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, the amazing BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. It is a professional online counseling service that offers tools and support from licensed professional therapists. They have, they have services available worldwide. You can send your message to your counselor at any time, and you will get thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room again, which is great, especially with the pandemic. They treat depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping problems, trauma, anger, LGBT issues, grief, self-esteem. Obviously, everything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional, affordable. You can check out Testimonial online on their site, which is betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. If you join now and use our code, which is betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast, you save 10%, which I really recommend trying because they can make your life better and happier and everybody deserves more happiness. So go to betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Again, that's betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com slash dopey podcast over one million people have taken charge of their mental health why shouldn't you and without further ado here's the great brandon novak all right so i'm like uh this is your third time or, or maybe even your fourth time on dopey uh legendary skateboarder fucking sober person drug addict interventionist actor can i call you a stuntman is that possible because of your stunts? I, I, I'll take. I, I'm easy, man. I'll take it any way I can fucking get it. It's Brandon Novak. Welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thanks so much. You know, to be honest with you, it, it might be three or four. And, and normally I don't like to, like, wear my welcome out. And I think sometimes things can become redundant. But to your credit... You don't, you're not aware of this, but I receive so many fucking phone calls and have put definitely at least seven people into treatment that have heard my story on the Dopey podcast. That's so So cool. like, you know, you don't know that. I don't tell you about it, but I get so many calls and I, you know, they heard my story on the, they heard me on the Dopey show. You know, it's just... It's 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 never ending. So when you asked again or any time you ask, I'm always like absolutely because the, your reach is far and it's broad. You know, it's so weird. Like who who'd have thought it? I remember in I think it was around uh, we got clean around the same time. You got clean in May. I got clean in August. And I feel like the first time you came on. You might have had like six months or a year, and I think you were just putting Dream Seller out in uh, paperback. 
Um, is that possible? Yeah. And and uh, me and my partner Chris, I think Chris found your number online, and he was like, "I think we could get Brandon Novak to come on the show." And I was like, "Let's do it! Let's do it! Let's do it!" And we called you up, and it was like a really big moment for us. And we didn't know what we were doing. And I and Chris obviously died, and I don't necessarily know what I'm doing now. But uh, it's a big honor to have you back. I remember. For some reason, I was, like, I think in New York with a whole bunch of guys, and they were inside the restaurant, and I was outside doing the interview. I feel like it was, you had a wake or something. Yeah, yeah had, it was. Had, That's exactly some... what it was. A fellow who lived in my, my at the time, sponsor's uh, recovery house, in Philadelphia had overdosed and died and we all I was trying to I'm like wait because I remember being like a group trip with a, a bunch of sober people and I don't really do outings or or, or or big group settings like that so I couldn't place it but you're totally right it was uh, it was his funeral and we all drove up you know in a few different cars to kind of represent you know him his life his death recovery sobriety all that so yeah that's exactly what it was and then the flip side of you saying that a bunch of dopey people reached out to you and you could help them, whenever I, I kind of put it out to the community who they love to hear on the show, you're always, like, in the top couple names. So, like, and it's just cool to me. Like, like I never, I, and, and to my discredit, to my failing as a podcast host, I never fucking read your book. I had you on a bunch of times. You told some crazy stories, and I kept saying, oh, I'm going to get the book. I'm going to get the graphic novel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden, I've been reading again, and I was like, I want to go back and read Brandon's book. So I, I got Dream Seller. You were like, you should get the new book. And I was like, I never read the old book. And I cannot believe what a crazy book you wrote. Dream Seller is such an amazing book. Yeah, it's... Um it's my favorite by far, you know, and, and I don't know if it's because that was the first book that I had written, you know, so it's kind of like your first child, you, you, you know, you, you create all these memories and, and the process of making that project. Um, and it, it, there was just so many things going on with me during the writing of that book internally that, that people were not privy to, you know, um, and, and, and externally looking at me and my life at the time of making that that art um you know i was living at bam's house i was on viva la bam you know i i was appearing on a weekly tv show that's ratings were like astronomical um hanging out at the playboy mansion fucking abundance of cocaine uh endless amounts of wine you know literally fucking swinging from the chandeliers at bam's house while wow, fucking tons of different women. You know, like things that people would like honestly only wish to do. But internally I was so fucked, man. And and I was I was going through such a struggle and a and a war that that nobody was privy to because and you know, it's kinda odd that we're getting into this, but that's what the sequel, The Streets of Baltimore, gets into is um during that time, you know, Bam had brought me from Baltimore to live at his house. And when we were filming Viva La Bam, when we'd be finished for the day, the cast and the crew would all go into Westchester to a, a restaurant bar, and, and we'd get a big table of like 20 or 30 people. And Bam was always really fascinated with the stories uh, of my addiction, the places it took me to, the positions it landed me in. And, uh, and he'd always be like, Novak, tell this story. Novak, tell that story. And when I would tell these stories in a 
par in a bar, a pub, a, a table of 30, people drinking, people eating, you could literally hear a pin drop. You know, it was it was I guess fucking quite magnetized for for some people and and uh, and, that, and out of nowhere one day he said that's it the terms of your contract have now changed you are going to write a book at this point I, I have no high school diploma uh, I was kicked out of the eleventh grade for drugs and alcohol I, I hadn't acquired my GED yet I got my GED after my first book was published Dream Seller while being incarcerated. Uh, at George W. Hill Correctional Facility. Um, but I, I had no idea how to write a book. I, 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 I didn't want to write a book, could care less about a fucking book, didn't read books. Uh, my, my fucking, you know, I, I enjoyed cocaine, uh, alcohol, pussy, heroin if they'd let me, pills if I could find them. <laughs> I, you know, I, I wasn't the kind of guy who wanted to read. But he said, all right, the terms of your contract have now changed. You're going to write a book. And what that means is you're going to carry around a pen and paper, a notebook and a, paper, a pen. I don't care if you're not even writing. You have to have it in your hands at all times. You can live here. You can be on the show. You can drive a car. You can have a credit card. And you can get paid for being on the show. But the first time that I do not see you with a notebook and a pen in your hand, you're going back to Baltimore. And I didn't want to fucking go back to Baltimore. <laughs> wow. Well, the, the interesting thing is he, Bam was basically your patron. Exactly. You were an artist, and Bam was like, you're going to pump out this art. But the fucked up thing to me is that if we really look back at the story, you know, Brandon was a, a big-time prod, prod, prodigious prodigal skater, and he got signed to Powell Peralta team, and he was also a prodigious junkie, got kicked off the team. Bam's skateboarding career kind of and famous career skyrocketed, and he's like, what happened to Novak? And you went, and he was like, "I want you to have this comeback." So you went to his place, and but like you hadn't gotten clean, right? So you're struggling, and he's like, "Write the stories, tell the stories," and you're still kind of living the stories, right? So that was the difficult part about it—the internal struggle that no one was really privy to, because. I love to go downtown. I love heroin. I love pills. Uh, you know, things that will allow me to fall asleep in mid-conversation, steal your wallet, help you look for it, all that kind of shit. And, and, you know, Bam and the crew did the best that they could with what they had knowledge-wise at the time while encountering addiction, or should I say my addiction, right? So it was okay for me to do cocaine and drink because that was sociably acceptable. Uh, I don't fall asleep in mid-conversation. I won't steal your wallet. Uh, I won't mm. fucking, you know, so that was cool, and I was the life of the party. But I was not allowed by any means to, to eat pills or do heroin. And everyone was really made aware of that. Because he was really trying to protect me the best that he could. And, uh, and I didn't want to do that. Like, so I would always sneak away to go downtown to Baltimore to get more heroin. You know, I was always on these fucking missions that, that never ended well. And, and he would catch me. He'd kick me out. He'd bring me. So imagine going to his house, living there, like literally... Fucking flying to the Playboy Mansion, swimming in the grotto, hooking up with chicks there, to then just wanting to do heroin. That's all I really wanted to do. But I'm being offered this opportunity that gets me out of Baltimore, which means now I don't have to like let men blow me for money to buy another bag of heroin. So this is a major come up. <laughs> um, I'm like this celebrity <laughs> guy overnight. But really, I just want to do heroin. So then I, I like find some pills. I find some heroin. He catches me. He then kicks me back out of his house. Now I'm back in Baltimore, like 
staying on people's couches or, or living in a recovery house that I don't want to be in. I just have nowhere else to go and I'm trying to like beat the piss test or I'm homeless. You know, so like the dichotomy of, of both of those worlds were just driving me insane. Well, it's, it is insane. And the funniest thing is that Bam, like, bless his heart, he doesn't realize that by giving you Coke and fucking liquor and alcohol, it's torture for a heroin addict. Like, to take Coke and not be able to get heroin, it's like, that's worse than being clean and not being able to get heroin. That's like the worst case scenario. Because I was like you. I took the exact same substances for the exact same reason. I mean, I don't know the exact same reason, but I wanted to fall out at every moment I could. I wanted to not be thinking. I wanted to not give a fuck. I wanted the easy pass to not giving a fuck. So I can relate to that. And Bam didn't even know that by giving you X, Y, and Z, it's going to triple your need for what you really wanted. No, no, he didn't. And that's, that's I know we're kind of skipping over, well, I'm kind of talking about the making of Dream Seller, but it's cool. the whole, uh, or a big part of I'm not worried. the sequel, <laughs> the big part of the sequel to that, The Streets of Baltimore, which just came out, really dives into those stories and the internal struggle and battles that I was having that, that people were just not even nearly aware of. Well, I mean, I'm excited to read it because like, I mean, I could barely put Dream Seller down, which is, uh, you know, I'm reading all these fucking memoirs now because I'm getting all these writers on the show, all these different people with these stories. And I just, I really loved yours. And, and I talked to a bunch of people who were like, oh shit, Novak's book is ridiculous. And I didn't expect it to be the way that it was because it really, I expected it to just be like skater who made it you know, like kind of the, the archetypical story of success and then whatever. But you start that book in, in like homeless, fucking strung out without your morning shot. You know what I mean? It starts out like yeah. the lowest. I mean, and if you think about it, right, if after what I just explained to you, living in that house, being allowed to basically just stick the head in, right? Like I can do a little bit of Coke, I can drink, but I can't fully penetrate here. Yes. Um, it's driving me insane. So when I start this book... I go right because that book allowed me to go back to that special place in my heart that I have for heroin without physically having to put a needle in my arm and go back to it. So writing that book almost brought me at the time a really a serious sense of ease and comfort that I could not get by finding heroin because I wasn't you know, able to do that at that time. So it was like, it allowed me to walk back down memory lane without physically having to walk back down it. And, uh, I, I really liked it. And I remember I was walking around, we were filming people, bam, and I was still in primetime party mode. And, and everyone looked at me as Novak, the party guy. And I wrote that book in 12 chapters. I wrote it in 12 chapters, pen and paper, like no laptop, like legit pen and paper is how I wrote that book. Um, and, and Joe Franz, which is my co-author, really smart guy with letters in front and behind his name, filmed the CKY videos, worked on Jackass. Um, he, he took my 12 chapters and turned it into 23 chapters. You know, because we had worked so long together, he knew how to finish my sentence. We, he had, he's really meticulous when it comes to doing research and fact-checking. Um, and, and, and it worked. It worked. The other crazy thing to me is like, again, you had achieved some notoriety uh, in the scene skating and, uh, and then it all went away. You know what I mean? Because you chose drugs and whatever over skating and whatever. But, and Bam's star rising and then he grabbed you and all of a sudden you had all that fame too and the addiction at the same time. Like how challenging was that to be famous 
uh, with this famous guy, but still be this sort of internally grimy, hardcore junkie. You know what I'm saying? Like, was that difficult? Dude, it, it, it was oh, difficult is a fucking understatement. It was like uh, walking a tightrope every day because literally... On the surface, like, I, I could party, I could drink, I could do blow, I could do just enough to get outside myself, but never really what I wanted to do. So anytime I could find that fucking little hole that I could get through, I would take advantage of it full force. So needless to say, I never knew when the rug was going to be pulled out from under me. Because at any given time, he's going to find out what I did. He's going to find out what I stole. He's going to find out where I went, who I went with how much heroin I really did. You know, it was all just a big shell game with a bunch of smoking mirrors. And I was always just kind of, everything consisted of this chess game that only took place inside my mind. Because whatever I told Bam had to align with the person behind him and the person behind him. So all these stories would just kind of like align. Um, And I never knew when the the jig was going to be up. You know, and and the alternative to that lifestyle was going back to Baltimore, being homeless there, like living on the streets, fucking doing things I don't want to do to get another bag of heroin. And, And having, you know, as an addict and an alcoholic, I have this ego and this pride, this false sense of security. And now I'm the fucking man, right? I'm on Viva La Bam. I'm on MTV. I'm fucking traveling the world. And I make sure people know that, right? Right. Um, And and then next week I'm kicked out and I'm homeless back in Baltimore asking if I can sleep on your couch. Try that for size. No, I mean, that's what we call, like, right-sizing life, right? It's crazy. (laughs) Crazy. Um, Yeah. When did you, like, I I know you started drinking and smoking weed kind of in high school. When did it click for you that drugs were the thing? It never really clicked, right? Like, what I've learned is, is, is that... In retrospect, today, my life is clearly live forward and learn backwards, right? So, so when it clicked, was far past too late. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, fuck, is when it clicked. Um, and what that looked like is probably after fucking three or four rehab attempts, 2021, 20, where I'm a full-blown heroin addict who's been kicked out of his mother's house, um, you know, running the streets, living in a shooting gallery in East Baltimore with Alexia, who and Alexia, you know, Alexia was. Please, she's my she. She was the girl that I lost my virginity to her, and she lost her virginity to me in high school. Right, I was the fucking skater kid who was the 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 real misfit of them all, um, and she was the the sorority lacrosse and soccer player who had scholarships from all these different colleges really and the the next book really gets into her too as a character um fucking italian chick that's not a real name i can't say a real name but um you know night and day from me polar opposite no tattoos beautiful italian girl and and uh and she followed suit with me and and became a strung out heroin addict as well, right? So like, her and I are now homeless, running the streets of East Baltimore, living in this uh, this guy named Slim's house, who we pay ten dollars a day. It's his, it's an abandoned house, but he's taking it over. He he runs electricity from like across the street. 
you know, we, we, we smoke crack and shoot dope by candle every night that sits on top of a, a milk crate with a, with a piece of plywood on top of it. And, and, uh, and, you know, that's when I realized like this thing got the best of me. I think I've taken this too far now. And, and, and the reality was it was at that point that I understood that I was incapable of getting myself out of this position. And because I had fucked up so many times, I knew that I had created it, right? Like my writing was on the wall that at 21, 22, paying $10 a night to sleep in Slim's abandoned house, um, shitting in a bucket, um, sharing a mattress with Alexia that we've pulled in off the sidewalk, uh, that my life was clearly unmanageable. Yeah, and that was like three or four years after the, the professional skateboarding had ended. Exactly. So at that at that point, it like clicked. Like, oh fuck. Right. Uh, you know, that was at the point where like I had been in a few treatment centers. Things had had gotten really bad really fast. Um, and I I had mar- I, I, I had married the world of heroin, right? Like, till death do us part, I had kind of signed on the dotted line. And her and I were like Bonnie and Clyde of East Baltimore. <laughs> the thing about Dream Seller, like, like, it's obviously a soul-searching, fucked-up, actual story. But the really crazy thing is it's incredibly cinematic. Like, the, the things that you got yourself into... Like, I didn't expect, like, the dude who has you running money for him uh-huh. while you're skateboarding. Like, how does that even happen? How did he pick you out that this dude who has to, to transport huge sums of money found you for it? Well, his name is Brian, right? I don't know. Maybe we called him B in the book. But his real name was Brian. Um, you, called him, you called him Dwight. Dwight. Okay, yeah. It's, I've, I haven't read the fucking book in a while, but it's Brian. No one will know that. Um, but, but what I was trying to think of, I was drawing a blank before, is Alexia. Yeah. I, I never could find her. She never did social media. I saw her once, like, some years down the road after our paths had fucking split ways. I was down the harbor here in Baltimore, actually, and I was panhandling. And she came up, and she was clean, mm. and she was married with a kid, no and she gave me ten fucking dollars. Oh my god! Um, but then I never saw her again, right? And that was years and years and years ago. I always wanted to find Alexia, and it was the day before my one-year anniversary, right before we had probably were introduced for the first time doing that show. I was in Baltimore. I was bored. I decided to go to a random meeting, which I never go to. And I walk up, and all of a sudden, I see this chick turn around and comes running towards me, and it's her. And she had been clean. She works at a methadone clinic now here in Baltimore, and I'm coming up on six years. She's probably got like eight or nine years clean. That's amazing. I was going to ask about her, and she, and she has a kid and whatever, and she's happy. Yeah. Now, we really get into her character and another person's character. It won't make sense if I tell you about it now, but where she's at and what she's doing now in the streets of Baltimore. She, though, uh, is really about the anonymity and refuses to give any interview or she wants, like, no part of it. And I, I respect that. I don't I, I'm not happy with that but I respect it no I mean it's like that's one of the moments in the book and it's early on that like she shows up basically a full on 
prostitute and you're fucked and she's like I'll give you yeah. half a bag and then you flash back to your relationship and that she was this all American high school girl and it's like really it hits hard you know I'm so happy to hear that she got her shit together and I can only imagine what that must have been like for you when you ran into her at the, at the meeting so, so that was the day before my one-year anniversary. Then we make plans to go have breakfast the following morning on my one-year anniversary. My mother, her, her new husband, who I'm very good friends with, who he's in the next book, The Streets of Baltimore, really a whole trifecta, because us three were running together at the end, him, him myself, and her. Um, and I got to make amends to her on my one-year anniversary, and she made amends to me. <laughs> it was really cool. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing, you know what I mean? But it's like, the other thing I think that is fucking very interesting is the title of the book, right? The idea of the title Dream Seller, you know, when I remember when you told me the title of your book, you know, whatever, four years ago, I was like, oh, that's interesting, Dream Seller. But then when I read the book, I realized that Dream Seller... In a lot of ways, it's just a manipulator, right? A dream seller is somebody that can sell you on anything so you can get what you want. And, and you were like... That's, exact reason, that's exactly why I titled it that. That, that's, that was my, my survival mode, my, my coping mechanism, my necessity for a day-to-day existence was selling you a dream for $10, I just had to get $10 once a day. Um, And that's exactly what that means. Do you think that because you were still kind of in addiction that you like to frame the manipulation as selling a dream? Because it's part of the manipulation. It's such like a, like, you know, it's like what the hustler does to get over is sell the dream. You know, with five years afterwards, you're like, I was not really, I was living a nightmare. You know what I mean? The dream wasn't, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's definitely (laughs) like part of that shit, right? But that's, that's what I said. You know, it's all in retrospect, live forward and learn backwards. That for people like you and I now who have been sober long enough, uh, we've had that spiritual experience, which only means that we've had the complete psychic change that's necessary in order for people like us to stay sober, right? We think different, we look different, we act different, we feel different. And, And the perspective and perception completely changes. So you're right, you know, at the, at the time I thought I was, you know, selling the dreams. The reality was I was living a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was just incapable of understanding that because I was so in the thick of it. One of my, one of my other, I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't, I, I can't keep kissing your ass and say how much I like the book, but I really like the book. And like, <laughs> when you, when you keep fucking up, I mean, also just like, it's like, all of us, you know, the audience, all of us have been to treatment for the most part at least once, if not several times. I've been several times. I've been to a million detoxes. And I know what it is to go in there. I, I was never on the streets. You know what I mean? I was never homeless. I, I was always taken care of. I was a very bougie junkie. Like, I don't think I would have enjoyed heroin without cable TV. So I had people making sure I had it. Um, but I still was fucking strung out for 10 years. You know what I mean? I just had people who gave me cable TV. Sure. I never was going to the Playboy Mansion, but I got to watch Lost and shit. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Um, there's something about uh, being in and out, right? Uh, getting well and knowing that when you leave, you're not, it's impossible to stay well. It's not going to happen. Like, and and each time something might click more than another time. Like when did it start clicking 
I mean, like, what, what changed five years ago? Well, so real quick before I answer that question, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact of how, you know, how I painted this picture, this very visual artscape, if you will, to, to what my goal was, was to allow the reader to feel like they were walking in my shoes, like uh, to feel, allow them to feel like they were sleeping in an abandoned house with me, fucking, you know, whatever it was. And the reason why I was so descriptive and so graphic that, again, a lot of people do not know, um, is that I wrote that book while sniffing copious amounts of cocaine. Um, The cocaine would allow me, this was in the beginning when it was still fun, right? Like I could still drink and I'd drink a bottle of red wine, fucking have a, you know, a few grams, just blow them out. And the the delusional paranoia hadn't set in yet. It was still a good time. now, if I were to do it, I'd become instantaneously paranoid, think people were outside my hotel room, start staring under the fucking crack, laying on the floor, shh, kind of steal. But, but when I was writing that book, I would sniff, blow, drink red wine, put some music on, set a vibe, and I would write five pages about you, literally pen and paper, five pages about you, uh, how, how your sweatshirt leans to the left and you have the strings that come through and it's zippered completely up and you have the headphones, you know, it, your beard shaped with the, the you know, the, 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 the six o'clock shadow. Before I would even say your name or what your relationship was to the story, right? So the cocaine just made me so overly graphic and, 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 and drama, you know, dramatic. Uh, I think it really helped <laughs> for the writing at, at that point in time. So I accredit, you know, the descriptiveness to, to the cocaine, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, come on. No way. I, it's you. It's, you're still doing it. You just did the same thing just now sober. Yeah. You did the exact same thing with, without the Coke. Come on. Give me a break. <laughs> you can do it. You well, don't need the well, fucking so, Coke. So when, when I was writing the next book, right, I was in rehab when Joe Franz was the only person that would come visit me in rehab. I had lost all friends and, and relationships. And, and he came and he's like, all right, what do you think? Should we start the next book, the sequel? And I'm like, I guess... And he's like, all right. So he would give me a list of of, uh, topics he wanted me to kind of elaborate on and uh, characters that he wanted me to, to, to speak about. And I had no faith, right? I, I, because I was newly sober, literally in my 90-day treatment center. I had no faith in my capability of writing without drugs and alcohol. Um, and I said, I don't think I can do it. And he said, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to go to your therapist. I'm going to see if we can carve out one hour per day, Monday through Friday, and your group will be for you to go wherever you want to go and sit down and, and, and work on this project. And instead of writing, I'm going to give you an audio recorder. You're going to take the audio recorder and you just talk into it. And I still didn't have any faith in my ability to produce something worthwhile. Um, but I did it because, it, right, what I had finally learned, it was about my actions and my behaviors. And it was time for me to say what I mean and mean what I said and, and to be a man of my word. So even if I didn't have any faith in, in my capability of producing anything worthwhile, I was going to fucking do it because I said I did it. And uh, that week, he, he visited me on a Sunday, the very first Sunday. Monday, my group started. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would talk about a different subject each day. He came back the following Sunday. I gave him the, the audio recordings. And he said, this is, honestly, some of the best work you have ever produced. And I, I, I was incapable of seeing that. The fog had lifted. These new characters had developed. My memory had came back. 
So you're right. You know, I, I'm quick to say uh, it was maybe for the cocaine or the alcohol. But no, I, I just, you know, yeah. But that, that's classic, though, because we, we don't think, we, we don't give ourselves credit in some moments. We're like, we, we shit on ourselves in these weird moments where it's obvious it's you. You're getting your shit done. And it's like, and quickly you defer to that. Um, but I understand. I do the same thing. I, it's, it's something that we do. You know what I mean? Um, I just, I, I'd feel amiss if I didn't ask what it was like as a kid who, who wanted to be a professional skateboarder to become, you know, a professional skateboarder, to be in, in, the, in the company of Tony Hawk and all these people um, and be high. Like, what was it like? Was part of you thinking, like, holy shit, I can do whatever I want and get away with it? Did you have that moment when, when in the prime of it? Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't really any repercussions from my actions because from a very young age, when I got my first skateboard at the age of seven, um, skateboarding raised me. Uh, I'm living in a home with my mother. My mother's, uh, she had just got a, uh, her very first job at the age of 15, drawing blood for $5 a pop, a phlebotomist, if you will, um, w- ultimately to work her way up the ladder to become a nuclear physicist on the board of Mercy Hospital. But we lived in that same home with my brother, my sister, and, and my father, who was like a real fucking menace to society. He, he never held a job a day in his life. He taught me one thing, if and when I go to prison, how to conduct myself, and, and he ran with the Hell's Angels. So my mother was working her ass off to provide and to serve for us. My brother and sister were like going to school, figuring out their own way in life, and my mother never wanted to leave me with my father because his behaviors were so erratic and, and, and irrational. Um, that she would take me to work with her and I would just skate in the parking garage all day. And, and skateboarding raised me and it became my babysitter. And then I, I had met friends and, and, and rose up the ranks and became like best friends with Bucky Lasik. And, and I, I was a sponge. I absorbed everything he did. I, I would dress like him. I would talk like him. I would walk like him. I would uh, attempt to skate like him, you know, style, because style was everything. And before I knew it, because that's all that I knew, like, it, it, it was my reality. It was the norm, right? School didn't really matter. I would go, but I, all I could do while I was in school was think about getting out of school to go skate. So with that being said, I rose up the ranks really quick, became really successful at a young age. So my caregivers, meaning my mother, my brother, and my sister, like, oh, well, there's a method to his madness. He's very successful at what he's doing, so he has to kind of know what he's doing. And I did until I didn't. And, and then when I didn't know what I was doing or how to fix what I had done, it was too late. I, I was kind of unsalvageable. Was, was, was Bucky and them doing any kind of drugs at all? Were they stoners? Were they drinkers? Did they party? Uh, I, I drank the very first time alcohol with Bucky in his basement uh, at his mother's house. I was fucking young. I was like nine, ten years old, and I drank. He got like a, a case of Natty Bow, and I drank it, and then ended up shaving my head that night. <laughs> I remember that. But besides that, no, that you know that they weren't into partying like that. Right. So like f- walking in his footsteps was everything except this one other piece because because you had the thing that addicts have which is when when you put that in you you felt at home right 
you know, yeah. and, and, and the skateboarding made you feel like that. But I mean, I know that when I came up, I, I, I was a very small time TV producer. And once I had it happening, I was like, okay, I can afford some heroin. And then I think the pressure of the, of the job and the pressure of my work and the incredible feeling that heroin gave me and the money I had, that's when I took the leap. And I was like, I'm going to do this every day because it makes me feel the way I want to feel. And uh, I can't help but think like that. The, there was some pressure on you as well. In that oh, absolutely, absolutely, man! The drugs and the alcohol completely relieved me of that pressure that I was under nonstop. You know, because I wanted to be the best, and to be the best in skateboarding entailed me doing some things that I probably didn't want to do, like jump down fucking thirty stair handrails, uh, do this, do that. Go skate instead of fucking hit on the hot chick. You know, all this stuff, which, you know, I signed up for and I wanted to do. But then when I realized there was an easier, softer way, still maybe yes. maintain my name and who I was. But while taking a substance and becoming the fucking man that didn't really require a lot of work or effort, sign me up. <laughs> so then that's when we get to that question I asked before. How did the dude in the Mercedes, yeah. Dwight or Brian, how the fuck did he find you? It's like the devil fucking finding you or something. So he, uh, he was like a, a guy that we knew that sold a lot of herb, like, you know, 100-pound fucking packages. Um, but he um, also did heroin, and, and he was the guy that, you know, when I started kind of going down the, 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 the road of, of partying, like, friends of friends knew him, and, and he, B was like the man, Dwight. Dwight was like the man, and, and, and he was like, he never really cared much about his appearance. He drove this Lexus. He'd kind of wear sweatpants. But he had this big fucking gold Rolex on and have this smoking hot girlfriend. And he would always go eat it like Ruth Chris. And he was a super nice, rad guy. And then I started smoking herb, and then partying more and, and then the very first time that I, I had done heroin you know he used to pay me to drive down the way with him and just because he wanted company he gave me a hundred bucks to sit in his car while he would go cop heroin and I was always strangely fascinated by this like intensely successful guy that relied on this little fucking bag that he would stick a pen cap in to hit I always found that really fascinating, and I just it was it was mysterious and it was like powerful and and I wanted to know what that was about. Right, I, I didn't expect him to to have the dope habit because normally some big time drug dealer cannot sustain anything, and that dude obviously couldn't sustain anything either. Um, so he must have been kind of new. I mean, like, how long did he did he sustain his his dope habit and his business? Well, no. So yeah, he had, he had sustained his business for some time, and then when the dope came into play, mm. clearly it didn't stand the test of time. Um, but while yeah. the heroin and the business were together, interjecting, um, I, I'd say maybe five more years, roughly. Right. Um, but his friends would like, you know, really look out for him because they were very successful in that world too. So if money would get lost, they would kind of cover him. Um, but yeah, so he knew that I was a promising skateboarder. We would go out to eat. I was fascinated with him. He was fascinated with me. Um, 
And he knew that at a very young age, I was like a regular in the airport. And this was before 9-11. So security was really relaxed. And I could travel anywhere and, and never be questioned. And I was like a fucking eight-year-old kid with a skateboard and a bag. And, and who the fuck's going to question a kid like that? And at that time, the clothing was really baggy. So he came up with the idea, why don't you transport some money for me out to California? Because you go out there all the time anyways, and no one's going to think twice about you. And me being fascinated with him and just getting into the drug world, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be like Bucky Lasik and Tony Hawk. Now I wanted to be like Dwight. That was, I mean, like, that's the heartbreak, right? Because you you were on the path to being Bucky Lasik and, yeah. and Tony Hawk. And fucking Dwight shows up and he straps like $50,000 to you and you're like, fuck. And you get high from that. I mean, that's the thing. You get high. We get high from everything. You know what I mean? We, you got high from the skateboarding, but you... A lot of effort, and then you get high from drugs, which makes us it's so easy to take and feel. And then all of a sudden, this dude is strapping 50 grand to you, and it just must be very confusing and, and overwhelming. Yeah, it was. It was all that wrapped up in one, yet uh, very fucking interesting. And uh, I gravitated towards it. Dude, the adventure that you had is like, it's, it's madness, really. It's just one thing after the next. And the fact that you bottomed out while Bam, you know, rose to success and he could be like, come on with me. And then all of a sudden, you kind of provide him with entertainment. Obviously, he was loyal to you as a friend, but still, he, he enjoyed the entertainment of having this fucking first-class junkie along for the ride. Absolutely. Was this skate hero. And that was one of my other really favorite parts of the book was you really describing that you couldn't help but have a resentment against Bam when you're in that house. Like, I just found that to be so real and honest. Because how could you... I mean, you knew he was your friend, and you knew that he, he loved you and that he was looking out, but how could you not have that resentment, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he, he was... Uh you know, he was the, he, he was the one that, that inspired me to get my very first tattoo before I had any. And it goes across my, my lower stomach. It says, no more fucking heroin. <laughs> you know, he's, he's the guy that I credit to, to helping me get out of Baltimore. Um, or else I believe I would have died here and, and been buried in that plot that my mother did buy for me years ago. Um, he did the best that he could with what he had. But the reality is the disease. But he was a, he was a kid. Yeah. But he was a kid. Like he he couldn't have he couldn't have done better because he didn't know better. No. And and you know he used to say you know Novak's my walking television. Novak's my walking television. And I loved it. Right. What what better what, what better gig for an addict uh, that entails you know the more outlandish my behaviors are the more outrageous my antics become the the higher the ratings go the more in demand I am the more money I make. That's a junkie's fucking dream. Or. Or the fucking flip side to that coin is you go back to Baltimore and you let men blow you for another bag of dope. What do you want to do? It's a pretty fucking easy pick, you know? Of course, but it's also the kind of thing that gets heavier and heavier. It's like, because like, you're like, you become this person that will do, because that's what you want to do anyway. You want to make him laugh. You want to have fun. And obviously you want to get high. So it all goes hand in hand in hand until all of a sudden maybe you can't get high or they're like, you can't get high. Why are you getting high? And it's like, dude, aren't we in this together? Like, yeah. like didn't, didn't you, didn't you realize what you signed on for here? Cause I did. You I did. I mean? like, You're absolutely accurate. hundred percent truth. But I also played that to my advantage because the reality is, is I could see that like 
Bam and others would start to party too much. And I'm the first one to be like, fuck yeah, let's keep this thing going. As opposed to being the voice of reason saying, whoa, I think we've had enough here. Yeah, well, you couldn't say that. It's, it was impossible for you to be like, there is no enough at that point. You yeah. Know? Um, and um, another thing, like when you, when you get out of, like the book ends and you're getting high. And then in the, in the epilogue or whatever, you, you approach your, your co-author, Joe, and you're like, what the fuck, man? Why did you end the book with me using? You yeah. Know, and he's like, well, dude, you're fucking using. What, what am I going to do? Um, and then, and then that's fucking the best thing because that's what we all did. Like one of my, one of my friends, uh, I, I've been getting these dopey scholarships for people. Like we've gotten lucky and people have like put people up. There's a dude who, who came on the show while he was still on methadone. You know what I mean? And, uh, we got him a scholarship in, in California. He had one of these fucking abscesses, like uh, Requiem for a Dream abscesses, you know, and he flew out there, and um, you didn't know that he was going to get better. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's what we all are like when we go into treatment. So the fact that when you end the book, you're using, or you know, that's oh, yeah. my favorite thing in the book. My favorite thing in the book is that, and I, I hate to spoil the book. I, can I spoil the book? I don't sure. Know, maybe I shouldn't spoil the book. I don't want to spoil the book, though. Am I, I, have I ruined the book for potential readers so far? I don't know. By giving your book away? I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say it. Fuck it. I'm not saying it. I'm taking I, that I back. Agree. But what um, you're not going to say, I do agree with. And things had never been more out of control at that point that you're alluding to. Yes. Read the book. I'm not giving away your book, Brandon. Fuck that shit. You're generous enough to come on the show. I'm not giving away the book. Yeah. Um, and then the interesting thing is that, and I, and I don't want you to like fucking psychoanalyze Bam, but in the past few years, he kind of like went berserk for a minute and you had to like put out a hand, which is really the whole point of getting clean, right? The fact that you could do that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's completely, it's come full circle as life tends to if, if you're alert or attentive enough to be aware of it, for me. Um, and I believe that without fucking getting all, all godlike, but the, the god of my understanding, my higher power, has, has brought me through this journey to be properly prepared to pay it forward to my best friend who got me out of that journey. Because the roles are completely reversed, and and he's the guy that needs the helping hand, and uh, I, I continuously reach my hand out. Sometimes he accepts, sometimes he does not. Um, you know, and and he's he's sick, he's suffering, just like we do. You know. Mm-hmm. And and when did you find like I found a weird spiritual awakening for myself. Like, I was at my computer begging my daughter's mother to let me smoke weed. You know what I mean? That was my spiritual awakening. Just begging her to give me permission to smoke weed and, and be a parent. Like, when did it change for you? Like, how did it happen that, like, you didn't go back? How did that... I mean, like, it's a miracle, right? It, it's, it, it, there's nothing, nothing shy of a miracle. Uh, I always say, A, it defies logic. The, the fact that I'm sober, it defies logic, and, and it's nothing shy of miraculous, equaling a miracle. Um, I, what I know now to be true that I did not know then in early sobriety is that the God of my understanding brought me to AA. And AA 
AA via the 12 steps have brought me back to the God of my understanding, which allowed me to have that spiritual experience, which was a direct result of my obsession to want to get high being lifted or the desire of me wanting to use removed finally. Um, And only after doing the internal work that was required in order to get these external results that I've always fucking desired finally, um, am I able to recognize, right, after five years of continuous sobriety coming up on six, am I able to recognize the synchronicity in life's events that have led me to the here and now, right here talking to you, prove that my God has been everywhere the whole time, right? I was incapable of seeing the spiritual experience that was taking place, you know, the day that I walked into BWI Airport, May 24th, 2015, and tried to board a flight to Fort Lauderdale to go live with some hooker because she had some heroin for me. And when the, the, the TSA airport security agent accused me of being high and denied me access to a flight for three fucking days, I thought, this, is, this was my perception of that experience at the time. I thought that this woman knew who I was, her kid is an addict or an alcoholic, and she's blaming her kid's disease on me. How dare this bitch piss on my parade? The fact of the matter was I was standing before her in the line. I had just gotten robbed. Um, This is the day before I go to treatment. And I had on uh, a pair of nice, at once point in time, nice dress slacks. If you overlook all the cigarette hole burns in them. Um, I had no underwear because I'm like a homeless heroin addict who lives to use and use to live. I don't wash underwear or find imaginary dressers to store them in. I had this, at once point in time, uh, nice button-up shirt. um, And I had these shoes on with one shoestring because I lost the other shoestring while tying off somewhere along the lines. And when I, I, I went, I put this outfit on because I thought I had to see my parole officer the next morning. My plan was to go to BWI Airport, catch a red-eye flight to Fort Lauderdale, score some drugs from this hooker who was going to give me drugs because she said my book saved her life. Um, And I thought that I could do that and make it back to see my parole officer in in Chester County by 8.30 a.m. and produce a clean urine. That's physically impossible. But I believe that it was possible um, because I have this delusional alcoholic brain that lies to me in my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable. So I get dressed accordingly because I'm on a tight timeline, and, and when I see Miss my parole officer in the morning, I got to look good. So I put that outfit on, but when I go to cop from the dope boys, they see fit to rob me as opposed to serve me. And when they rob me, they rip my front and my back pockets completely out. Now my dick and my ass are completely exposed, swinging in the fucking wind because I don't have underwear on. They rip my shirt open. The only button that stays button is my very top button. And I have these shoes on with one shoestring. And I'm now roaming the streets of West Baltimore looking like a a gay East L.A. cholo gangbanger. So when that plan does not go as I expected, I hurry up and I get to the airport and I try to board a flight. Again, I thought she knew who I was. She blamed her kid's disease on me, how dare her piss on my parade. The fact of the matter was, nobody dressed the way I was dressed would be allowed to walk outside, let alone board a flight anywhere. But what I can clearly see now is that the God of my understanding dressed up in the form of a TSA airport security agent and did for me what I could not do for myself. Because I did not want to get on that flight. I swear to God, I knew that, that it was probably going to end in my life if I boarded that flight. My heart was beating 10 million miles an hour like I just shot 20 kilos of cocaine. I did not want to get on the flight. 
but the disease from which I possess does not allow me to have the privilege to not get on. You know, it says, bitch, get the fuck on and get there. And I don't have a say-so. So when she denied my access, it was like a weight had lifted off my shoulders. And I got out of line, and I called my sponsor, and I said, Lex, I'm, I'm stranded at BWI Airport, and I want to kill myself. He said, no, you're going to get on a train. You're going to come back to 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. You people, man, you people are going to kick. You, you left your cookouts. You left your families. You left your loved ones. Memorial Day 2015. And you came and picked a hopeless, helpless alcoholic such as myself up from that train station. And you let me stay with you. And then you took me to treatment the next day after seeing my parole officer. And, and like another experience, you know, so, so, but the very first experience that I can clearly recognize was being denied access to that flight. <laughs> it was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's major. That's a major answer. And I, I love that answer. And, um, I, and you know what that was? That was simply me being divinely inconvenienced in just such a manner that the God of my understanding created just a big enough gap between me and that shot of heroin so I could have that moment of clarity set in to see my reality, right? What I said in the beginning, me, Brandon Novak, what I had created for myself for what it really was. And I could not escape no. it. Right. There was no, there was no way out. And, you, and that was an incredible like, gift, a great, the greatest gift you could have ever gotten. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing how it works and that we don't all get lucky enough to get it. But then what you did after that is you fought to hold it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You fought to hold on to that thing no matter what, and that's why we're having this conversation right now. And uh, I know you just opened up uh, a sober house. So I opened up a, a men's recovery house in Wilmington, Delaware. It's called uh, Novak's House, and if anyone's interested, they can look it up at novaxrecoveryhouse.com. Um, you know, I'm married to my narrative because it produced great results. It worked. I'm sober over five years. Um, why fix it if it's not broken is kind of my motto today. And, and I realized that there, not only the importance, but the need uh, and lack of access to recovery homes, ethical, credible recovery homes where there's a lot of accountability, um, good recovery, and like serious sobriety which I'm all about all of that. So I decided to create the environment that I believe in and that I know works. So I've built a recovery house uh, for 11 men, which I work with those guys on a daily basis. I'm over there, we hang out, we sit down, we come up with plans, you know. Um, and and it's, 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 it's amazing. It's so cool to, to see these guys you know, I built, I had the house built and, and, and did the whole deal and, and it was rad, but it really didn't seem real until I got the first three guys in there. And then I called there one night and it's like 1130 and they're in the backyard by the fire pit making s'mores. And I'm like, that's it. Making these new sober recovery memories. That's it. Well, it's, it's amazing. Cause that, that's all we want. All we want is that feeling. All we want is like our people and feeling like we're part of it. That's all we ever want. That's why people like Dopey because they get that feeling from Dopey. Listening to Dopey is like eating s'mores in your ears. And, uh, and I think, yeah. I think positive, <laughs> like that shit is, is the real thing. What's your program like now? Like, have you kept up the program since, you know, in the last five years, you still go to meetings and stuff? Yeah, totally. I, I still, I, I still go to meetings. I, I still sponsor guys. I just, 
took my spots. He, we just did his sixth and seventh step the other night. Uh, I'm still heavily entrenched in it, man. You know, I, I take heed. You know, the pain that I endured was so powerful. I, I really listened to everything that they told me. And, and I took heed to what they said when they said, stick to the basics so God will never have to go back to the basics. So I, I go to meetings. I sponsor guys. I have a sponsor. You know, I have a, a connection with my higher power. I do the deal, man. Do the deal. Because the reality is I suffer from a disease called alcoholism, not alcoholism. And I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. It has a shelf life of 24 hours. So I do a few simple things along the way each day to maintain my sobriety. It's amazing. I mean, I, I, when I was coming up on five years, like, I wasn't doing great. You know what I mean? Like, I was fighting with people and I was like very nervous and I was very like I wasn't in a good place but it was because I my program wasn't that together I wasn't going to enough meetings I wasn't praying enough I wasn't talking to my sponsor enough I wasn't doing it and even when you hear that kind of talk like you only have today and and the you know that kind of like really good hardcore recovery talk I kind of didn't believe it and I kind of felt like my cumulative time could carry me and when I got my five years and I felt so out of sorts I realized what it meant, you know what I mean, and that I had to double down. And I and like I didn't have like that's my other favorite thing about recovery. You don't have to do anything. We could go get high if we want to, but if we want to be happy, joyous, and free, and be the kind of people that we want to be, we need to do it, you know. And I mean, so when I started doubling down on my program, I got that good feeling, which is why there is only today, right? I mean, it's like there's only today because yeah. you know, and it's uh, it's miraculous and like. You do so much for the scene. Like, I know people that, like, found your number on Instagram and they called you and you spoke to them and it freaked them out. And it's like, and that's how you got on Dopey. And that's just maximum service in the first place. So, like, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm very, very happy to talk to you, even in, if you're in this weird hotel room with the weird yellow light and everything. It's been, uh, it's been a joy for me. And, like, uh, you know, you've done such good stuff. I mean, forget all the stuff you do for yourself and Novak's house and all that stuff. The stuff you've done for Dopey is, is so beautiful. So I, I'm just incredibly grateful for, for everything you do for us. The feeling's mutual, man. And if you can add to this interview the number that I give out for people to reach me that are looking for help, 610-635-9092. Call me. That's my number directly. If I can't answer, my team will, and we'll do whatever we can to get you the help that you absolutely not only need but more so deserve. You know, I love you, brother. Thank you for allowing me the, the platform in which to, to maybe help somebody. I don't know. Well, you're, you're a good dude. Yeah, who knows? But I know your story is great, and I know I did not give away your book. So check out fucking Dream Seller. Yeah. Check out fucking Streets of Baltimore. Yeah. If you're interested in my work, you, you, you can just go to brandonnovak.com. It's all one word, and that's everything on there. All right, man. Real well, I, appreci- I appreciate your time. Always be in touch. Love you, brother. All right, there he is, Brandon Novak. That was so great. I didn't expect that. I didn't know anything about him. I just know him from Jackass. I didn't expect him to be so eloquent. Well, I think the, the thing that I love about Brandon Novak is he's come on the show a bunch of times and he's told us little bits and pieces. But this was the first time I think he came on the show and really chilled. Like he was like relaxed and it was fun. Yeah, he told uh, one gnarly story at the airport, but a lot of it was about recovery. And I think it was just like chill. It was like his story, which I liked. Yeah. And... um I never liked Jackass. Like, Jackass was never yeah, my thing. you told me that. I love Jackass. I think Jackass, like, 
is well, the is the least Jewish show in the history of I television. Don't, I don't understand that. I just there's a lot of hot guys like half naked on it. Because Jewish guys don't like get in shopping carts and like <laughs> get pushed through the thing or like get on a skateboard and put on a Viking helmet and jump over alligators or whatever they do. Yeah. Jewish guys like don't risk life and limb for comedy. I wonder if any of them are Jewish. None of them are Jewish. No, are you sure? Pont- yes. Pontius? Look at it. It sounds Greek. It doesn't sound Jewish. <laughs> Pontius is another not Jewish sounding name. But uh, yeah, I, Brandon, and read his book. I think you'd really like his book. I'll check it and out. And you know what? We didn't I talk about I looked up his porn this morning. I watched Brandon Novak's skateboard porn. How in depth was the pornography? Well, he's skateboarding, he's injured, and then these hot nurses take his clothes off and blow him and then put him in an. But ambulance. is it like a porn? Oh, Does it's it a, look it's like a, a porn? It's a total porn, yeah. Wow. And then there's a, a video of Bam peeing into. Brandon's mouth, which is pretty intense. Yes. That sounds like something you'd be into, though. 976P, where the extra E is for extra P. Um, do you know about that? I, of course. Um, what was I going to say? Um, that, I, I wonder if that channel is still on. It's not. The, um, those guys have to be like 80 when years old. My parents, Robin Bird has to be like in a wheelchair. Like, yeah. My parents stayed in somebody's apartment. I'm like, whatever you do, don't turn on channel 35. <laughs> well, it's funny because it wasn't channel 35 everywhere, but here it was also. So, you know, I don't think it was channel 35 everywhere. It was in, channel J. In Manhattan, it was 35. Definitely in this, this part of Manhattan it was. Um, yeah, if Dopey Nation, if you're from Manhattan and you watched uh, that channel whatever it was was it channel 35 <laughs> where you Robin Burr. i'm totally interested it was in so that. bad it was so amateur i know but it was so great you know it was so great it was so di- repetitive and disgusting and disgusting <laughs> it was a different time and it feels like because of this horrible pandemic that uh the city is in big trouble walking over it, here everything is closed yeah. down when i was walking over here i was texting with Ben Crawford about this song and I texted some pictures of like the Chelsea Hotel and stuff and he's like where are the cars where are the taxis I'm like it's empty here everybody should know that it's a it's a scary moment and um hopefully we come back uh this year because like what the fuck happens but maybe there'll be more lo-fi tv and stuff like the old days (laughs) um the other thing that brandon didn't talk about was his street hustling days oh he did talk about it he mentioned it quickly but i'm just trying to pique your attention i googled it i googled it what did you find out just that just what he said that, that it happened all right, now we have an exclusive report from Ray's Recovery. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I was just saying, like, I just told Dave, like, I'm, you know, I'm at a overload with this fourth step. And I said to my sponsor, I'm trusting you. You seem like a trustworthy guy. And I'm going to do whatever you say. But it's like, it's, it's just fucking with my head. And it's emotional. And it feels like, too much and we've been going and going and going and going and well you have to understand ray ray's working on a fourth step he started it in august he started writing out the 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 mock fourth step in august now it's it's december and it's still a mock fourth still mock i was i was like when i was with my other sponsor oh this guy's like the navy seals and the other sponsor was like the peace corps no this guy like whenever you've told me about your sponsor i'm always like that sounds awesome that sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. Until this. This is a questionable moment in his sponsoring. And I still, and I'm not going to, I don't question your sponsor. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't. I want, 
I want what he's describe. I want what he has, and what he's describing is going to happen, and I'm trusting it. But I also well, feel like I'm going deep into a cult, and they're like mining me for like bad. You know, he's like, tell us everything terrible about yourself. I'm like, it turns out he's writing the first unauthorized biography about Ray <laughs> Stephen Brown. It's going to be interesting. I mean, that's what cults do: is they find out a bunch of shit about you, and then they've got you. Right, but I think that. I think for the most part, these 12-step groups are just full of such fuck-ups they could never do anything. It sounds like your sponsor is like the least fuck-uppy guy in 12-step. Yeah, and and he says he is, and like he doesn't seem like... But it's just like he's just dredging stuff up that like I would rather like not dredge up. Well, that's you... I think maybe it's because you're such a denier. You have such a hard time with reality. No, if you ask me, how, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm great. But that's what I'm talking about. I know. I'm saying it's very, very hard to get the truth out of you. And maybe because you're so not in touch with what you actually think or you refuse to actually say it, that's why it's taken you fucking six months to do a fourth step. Yeah, and I'm, I'm still thinking all the things I was thinking that I was crying about last year. It's still going on. I'm just stopped talking about it because I, I wore it out with everybody. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying and is... All, and the other stuff, that like the deep down stuff like... I've just never brought that up with anybody. Well, I, maybe you're the worst sponsee he's ever had. Maybe you're like the biggest. He's like, I'm going to crack like, this nut eventually. Or he's like, holy fuck, what did I do? Well, it's, it's a serious... And I think he hates me too. I don't blame him. <laughs> because it's like, it's like I, I love you, Ray, but like if you want to delve into the truth, you're very much surfacy. You're very much want to make everyone happy. You want to make everyone feel comfortable. And that's number one for you. You're not like, I need this. I can't do that. You're freaking me out. I don't like that you want this for me. You know, you don't do that. I told you I wouldn't come out to the house. With that me, was really hard to do. But you, I think you've with, with me, I think I'm so out there that you realize that the only way to stay in a f- friendship with me is to be able to share stuff or else it's not going to be a friendship. Yeah, the, the, the guy in France was like, I wrote him this morning and I was like, I didn't go out there. I think Dave is mad at me. And he's like, I don't understand why you're hanging out with this guy. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? What do you see? What do you see? I think that there is a terrible secret life. Oh, because I told, I told him yesterday you screen captured a private text message and put it on Instagram. And he's like, that's a really shitty thing to do. I'm like, it was funny. You are such a fucking <laughs> piece of work. You're such a piece of work because you live for everything that I do. No, if, I thought it was funny. I texted Ray, what are you doing tomorrow? And he texted me, Eating ice cream and jerking off. And I, and I posted it on Instagram and I said, looks like Ray's living his best life. <laughs> and I knew that you love that. Well, I said that because that's what you accuse me of doing all the time. I do not. All I say is that you watch uh, YouTube wrestling, whatever it's called. What are they called? Singlets. Singlets. I haven't watched that in a while. Well, what, what, is, your, what is your new? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Telephone. Um, What's your new thing? I don't know, you, YouTube You're thinks, masturbating to Brandon Novak porn now? Is that the new thing? Uh, no, The answer no, is yes. No, you see it all over your face. No, the answer is no. You're, you're masturbating to old Bam Margera clips? <laughs> no. Viva la Bam? No. Um, listen, I can't help it. And, and I personally, I know that you only chomped on a couple of chest hairs and you only swiped your <laughs> finger along the rim of the toilet. And I know half of you 
hates that I talk about it, but half of you loves it. No, I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't. You love I the shock. It. The fact that you cornered my father in the kitchen <laughs> to tell him the Viagra story, you love the shock value. Yeah, I, you know, I forget, and you were there going, no, 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 with your hands. Like, I forgot in that moment. I'm like, oh, now I've brought up the story. I have to tell like an edited version of it, which Jesus I did. Jesus Christ. We're, we're packing up last week. And we're in the kitchen, and I'm packing up, and Ray's like, oh, Alan, you're not going to believe how much Viagra I have in my drawer, and my whole world just stops. <laughs> you know, like, obviously my dad listens to the show. Right. Obviously, but, like, I just made him close the door. I know. Because I can't be, it's not comfortable for me to have, be talking shit and have him there. Like, it's just. Ugh. Why haven't we always done this show in the dining room? I don't. I like it better in the kitchen. <laughs> I find it to be much more contained in the kitchen. It's like I wear a hat to keep my head on straight. I like to do dopey in the kitchen. I like that feeling. Um, anyway, so Ray wound up making me impossibly uncomfortable and making my poor dad. You probably took a year off of his life. You should have seen his face. He's like got this weird smile and he's nodding as though he had well, a drawer full of Viagra and he understands about Brown 69ing. Oh, well, that, we, that, I didn't talk about that. <laughs> I thought you were talking about today because I was like, we could have come to my apartment to also today. What are you talking about? For And not invaded Alan's place. Well, I have a day of customer service to do. Right. I have a day of phone answering. And I want to say something else about you, Ray, that you know who you remind me of? You remind me of two people. You remind me of Chris, right? And they're two very big dopey people. You remind me of Chris in your ability to deny, your, your need to please people, your general congeniality and sweetness, innocence, uh, belied by a crazy demonic sex freak, drug addict, alcoholic. Um, and then you also remind me of Big Bird. <laughs> you have this very sweet thing. And it's like watch Sesame Street, watch Big Bird, and and you might know what I'm talking about. I've seen Big Bird. You know what's weird? Like I had trouble sleeping last night. I couldn't sleep, and I was waking up with nightmares. But I was watching YouTube, and Chris came up on a talk show. Yeah. And then I pressed refresh. Yeah. Guess who came up? Who? You. And on a Wee B show. Wee B. What T- is that? TB Wee B. What is that? It was a short interview with you in 2004. About what? I mean, 2014. About the last year's yeah. year. Right. It's weird that like, oh, that's YouTube knows you two are connected somehow. Oh, YouTube knows that we're connected. Yeah. Absolutely. But Chris didn't talk about Dopey on that show. No, I got really angry at him about it. But all the comments were about Dopey. Did you see how his hair looked, though? That was the funniest thing. Yeah. He had, like, gel in his yes. hair, and it looked so <laughs> bad. And I was like, dude, why did you bother put it? You never put gel in your hair, and you ruin your hair. Styled himself. Well, that's the other thing. Like, Chris goes on that show, doesn't talk about Dopey, then tells all of his friends about Dopey and doesn't promote it. Um, that's a tough interview, right? Did you watch the whole I, thing? I watched a lot of it. But I, as soon as I saw the setup, the like, kind of like low-budget TV talk show, I'm like, he is not going to mention Dopey on there. I just knew he was not going to mention Dopey because it was serious. It was right. Like that was where he was Dr. Chris. Yeah, Dr. You know? Chris. Um, you want email, voicemail, or chopped liver story? Chopped liver you want the chopped liver story? Yep. All right. So um, so they ran out of chopped liver, or they were running out of chopped liver at Katz's. Uh-oh. Disaster. And they asked me to go to a warehouse in Deer Park, New York, 
to pick up 24 cases in my car and drive it to the Lower East Does Side. Does that even fit? Do you know what it reminded me of? Have you ever seen Goodfellas? Yes. You know at the end of Goodfellas where, like, uh, Jimmy asks uh, Henry to, to kill the guy? Yeah. And, and Henry's like, Jimmy never asked me to kill anybody before. That's when I knew that if I went on that hit, I was going to get whacked. Yeah. So I'm driving to fucking Deer Park. I'm like, they never asked me to go pick up chopped liver. That's where it was, right? Um, it's 6.30 in the morning. But where was it in Goodfellas? That was Long Island. It was very, very, looked like Goodfellas. I'm just saying that I felt like, yeah, why, why is he are asking, they asking me? me to go at 6 in the morning to fucking get the chopped liver? Why would Cassis kill you? They would just fire you. I know. I was just being imaginative. Um, but you get there, and there's nothing there. It's just like there's nobody there. And it's like I call the guy. I was like, I think I'm in the... And it's also like getting drugs or something. Yeah. I was like, I think I'm in the right place. He goes, he goes you got to come around back. Uh-oh. And, and I That's go around they're back. Get you. And it's like decrepit warehouse shit. And this dude comes out. He's like... Hey, you eat this shit? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I, I like chopped liver, okay. He's like, I never even had it. And he just loads up my station wagon. Is with, there like juice coming out, getting into your car? No, it's very well sealed. And I and I drive the chopped liver into the city. And then um and I drove back, right? And um so I mean I had driven to Jersey and I had driven to the city and I drove back. And last night, Linda's taking Nora to the orthodontist. And she gets to the orthodontist, and the car breaks down as she's rolling in to the orthodontist's oh, office. No. So what I'm saying is, I could have had it break down on the With fucking the chopped William, liver on the Williamsburg Bridge, or or oh, or man. like wherever, or, or she could have had it broken down on the highway. But somehow it pulled into a spot and broke down. And I'm not one for like God shots and Todd shots and all that shit. I'm I'm one who says, oh, that's that's lucky. That's fortunate. But um, yeah, last night the fucking car broke down and I had to go get AAA. Uh, I, it was like last night was almost like the ultimate example of the promises coming true in my life. Because like I'm working like a dog. The fucking car breaks down, but I have AAA. Because uh, you're together. The, well, because my dad gave it to me, but oh. we don't need to deal with that. <laughs> the, ba- the babysitter brings Susan home and I, I ask her to stay for an extra two hours and I offer to buy her dinner and, and obviously pay her for it. Uh, and I drive to, uh, to get Nora and, uh, and, and Linda and the three of us like go out to dinner. And we had, the three of us hadn't gone out to dinner in a million years. And then we picked up hot chocolate bombs. Do you know what a hot chocolate no. bomb is? It's like this dense like ice cream scoop of like chocolatiness with marshmallows inside and you put it in a mug and you pour hot milk over it and it explodes and the marshmallows what? come out. It is the best. Wait, is it it's hot when you drink it? Well, you add hot milk or hot water oh. to it. We added hot milk to it. But I'm just saying last night I'm everything fucking, worked out. Everything was bad, but because I have my shit together because I'm not worried about like doing something bad. Yeah. I, I can actually copping. I can or you know, copping, cheating, lying, stealing, whatever, because I'm dealing with shit properly, everything worked out. You know, and then I went to bed early and uh and I got on the fucking five forty five train so that we could do this now so that I can work all day. You know, like and I don't like to be Mr. uh whatever, propagator of cult shit. But the truth is my life is a billion times better than it ever was because of that. Of course. 
And I also think the one thing that we didn't talk about that I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, I've been speaking at a bunch of Zoom meetings online. And uh, I did one for, I'm not going to mention the names, but different 12-step uh, cults, 12-step groups. <laughs> and um, I, I hate that each group is a different thing and maybe you're not supposed to say something about one and the other. Oh, yeah. Or you're not supposed can to... Can we curse here? Can we, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do this? Like being comfortable talking about drugs in AA or talking about weed in CA or talking about ketamine in yeah, MA. Yeah, that or dry talking, goods. Like, ah, uh, dry goods. All that shit. I fucking hate that shit so me too. much. Me too. And it makes me think that maybe there is a chance for the alt-recovery movement not as a non, as a sort of laissez-faire, free-spirited place where you can talk about anything. I keep meaning to go to Dopey Zoom and check out what they're doing now because I haven't been in a while. And it started out as like you know laissez-faire, and now I think it's getting more and more like an actual meeting. Well, I am incredibly impressed and proud of the dopes in the Dopey Zooms. Uh, I've even suggested some people go. One day I will turn up in one of them. And uh, and I won't be Melissa. You know, my fake name isn't Melissa. My fake name is Betsy. Betsy. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, where are you, dude? Get on here. And you're like, I'm on here. I'm Betsy. Yeah, like, Brandon Novak's like, who's Betsy, man? <laughs> All right. Uh, dopey email, okay? Yep. You want to read it? You want me to read it? You read it since you're over there. All right. Yes. In COVID land. All right. Uh, you want the long one or the short one? The short one. You sure? All right. Like, what's the point of this? Like having the f- the fucking number pop up on your phone and it says potential spam. Potential it, spam. Just yeah. say spam. Yeah. Like, it maybe maybe it's your dad, but maybe it's spam. Like yeah, that fucked with the census because nobody answers their phone anymore. The fucking email spam I hate more than anything. Oh, that's just started for me. Uh, it's like I I my I, whole world is email spam. You texted me at five this morning. You're like. Hey, listen, no, are you up? Listen to the thing I sent you. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm laying there trying to sleep. You mean you weren't up jerking off to uh, your boy toy in Paris? I was Paris awake. And gay Perry. I was awake. Uh, but then my phone started going beep, beep, beep. And I thought, fuck, I should not have answered Dave. Now he knows I'm awake. And he's just sending me crazy text from the train. But it was some scam email. Let's just blowing be, my phone Let's up. be honest for a second. How often do I send you crazy texts? Well, it was like beep, beep. I thought no, no, it was- no, I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you in all honesty, do, am I ever the person that's constantly bothering you with texts? If you send me something and I don't respond, you will send me five texts in a row. Until you respond. Until and then I'm respond, done. Yes. <laughs> right? That's the thing. I just need validation that I exist in the universe and then I can move on. All right. I'm going to read. You'll send me question mark, question mark, question mark. I need, I need a response. I need, I need a response. All right. I'm just going to read this one. I don't know if it's the short one or the long one. Okay. I don't care. If it's too long, we'll read the other one. This is the long one. This is actually an email I got a while ago, but I'm going to read it anyway. Not sure if you saw my last email or understood that or and understand that you get a lot of correspondence. Even this goes to the junk folder or unread. It is still a semi-healthy way for me to take inventory, especially if I am not going with the traditional 12-step method. Then he puts alt recovery with a lot of exclamation points. Since my last email, I started seeing a psychiatrist and got on an SSRI. 
started weaning off the Xanax and stopped smoking weed. And since April 28th, I've been completely sober, like 100%. I credit Dopey some part of this because you, Chris, and the Dopey Nation's voices have been in my ear since I got down to my last emotional bottom and had started looking for a better way. I think the timing was great for me. It would have sucked trying to get the amount of Xanax I was going through during this pandemic shit. I feel free for the first time in a long time, and it helps that I have no children, and my wife has been amazing and understanding through all of this. Quick dopey story. Used to get a bunch of freebase from Washington Heights, then shoot down to 14th Street and picked up secondals, twoinals, valiums, or whatever uh, for the come down. It was a great way to manage the excruciating crack-smoking withdrawals at like 4, 5, 6 in the morning. But often, the benzos would make you feel so good, let all your inhibitions go and find yourself on the A-train or car service over the Tribro back uptown for more bass. One time, I was doing this routine while briefly staying back at my parents' house. I would lock my bedroom door and blow the crack hits out the window. After the third or fourth big blast, I started convulsing uncontrollably. I was scared but had all my mental faculties. Uh, so often thought people kind of blacked out during these things. I remember thinking, well, you are flopping like a fish on the deck of a ship and can't control it. This sucks. I waited for the seizing to subside enough to grab a two-and-all. Uh, Quickly knocked it back, and after about an hour and a half, it kicked in, and I had that ah feeling of relief and took like a 15-minute power nap. What did I do as soon as I woke up? Started hitting the pipe again until 5 or 6 a.m., and then had to go to work at a moving company with a bunch of junkies. That sounds like a nightmare. The other morning, I was, wa- I was walking up the steps at Penn Station, and uh, there's this bunch of really loud kind of crazy people, young people, but they also looked homeless. They also looked a little tranny, transy. Yeah. Um, and one of them fell down at the top of the stairs, and I thought it was like shtick or like they were playing around, and she was having a full-on seizure. Oh. And I was like, holy shit. And I was like, somebody somebody has to do something. You know, and... You uh, ran up there? No, I was walking up the steps, yeah. and I said, oh, you guys, you guys should call somebody. <laughs> I said, and I said, wait a second, I should go do something. And then I found a cop, and I sent oh. him over there. Um, that story sounded like a pinball machine. He was a human pinball. Yeah. And this dude, this dude is some kind of hardcore scene guy. That must have been in the late 80s, early 90s, because I live on 14th Street, and I was in Valium Central. My corner, they just stood there and went, V's, V's, V's. I, I mean, that is an old school story because you don't hear about Tulanol or Secondol Tulanol. You hear that's on the Velvet Undergrounds live at Max's is Jim Carrey comes up to Bridget Polk, who was recording it, and goes, do you got any Tulanols? But it's definitely not the Jim Carrey. No, it's Jim, Jim Carroll. Jim Carroll. Yeah. You Jim Carroll. Jim Carroll, sorry. As in the Basketball Diaries. Basketball Diaries, yeah. Is that his name, Jim Carroll? Jim Carroll, yeah. I feel like that's not his name. People who died. Yes, not Jim Carrey, but Jim Carroll. <laughs> Jim Carroll. My I'm, bad. I'm watching them put the windows on these 100-story buildings right here, and I was walking down 14th Street, and they have a picture of one of these buildings on a phone booth on 14th Street. I looked at it, went into full vertigo, and almost fell on the ground. I almost passed out. Something's wrong with my body. So Something's wrong with your body and your mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, do I have Parkinson's? I, I think you. I think. I mean, like, I get nervous because your handshakes. I was I was texting with Hot Wheels Brian Hot yeah. Wheels, and he goes, he goes, and I'm gonna do my Hot Wheels impression. He's like, Ray's not really sixty, is he? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. 
And he's like, why are you, how are you hanging out with a senior citizen? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't want to say anything about the identity, but I want to apologize to Crystals for being so mean. No, you were right on fucking point. Uh, Fuck that. Listen, even if you're using out there, you don't need to give a fucking bad review. Crystals, whatever your name is. Crystals. I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? I was calling him a fucking idiot. Yeah. Well, there you go. If the crystal fits. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Fucking hell, Ray. I think we're going to do a, a nice, tidy episode today. Are we gonna, now we're going to do DopeyCon 2. Yes, we have tons. DopeyCon 2 has me working like a fucking, I don't even know. I've ne- I, I am so invested in DopeyCon 2, and there are people working on it There's all so over the place. There's so many people working on it. People are, DopeyCon, you know, one of the places I always would cry, like, I, I'm not a big crier, but if my life is bad, right, and I watch a movie, and at the end of the movie, like a lot of people come together for something. Yeah. Like that always gets me. Like they come together and support somebody, or yeah. they turn up at the wedding, or they turn up at the graduation, or they build something together. I hate when movies make me cry. Well, it's I, I it's it's very emotional, and I I DopeyCon two is like that. Everybody's coming together, past fans. Uh, current fans, people I used to work with 20 years ago are working on the show. They're, it's it's going to be... This is what it's going to be. I think people are going to cry. It's going to be very long. It might be kind of boring, but it also will be incredibly cathartic and incredibly special. Should I not say it's going to be boring? It might be boring. I, I think of it as like the dopey Grammys without awards. I think there might be a tear or two. Who? You think you'll cry? I might cry. You think you'll cry like a baby? <laughs> Maybe. Um, we'll see. We'll see who cries. DopeyCon 2 is next week. I, I've got no press, very little talk about it. We need to get the hype machine rolling. So I want you guys in the Dopey Nation, I want you to call your local TV news team. Tell them about Dopey. Tell them about DopeyCon 2. I will send you a press release. Pass it along. Get the word out. DopeyCon 2, Wednesday night, 8 or 9. When should we put it out? Uh, 8.30 8.30 Eastern Standard Time Alright Ray you want to take us out? Stay strong Dopey Nation Fucking toodles for Chris And Ray does some amazing shit in DopeyCon too But yes Stay strong Dopey Nation And fucking toodles for Chris I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time to 
Washington, sitting far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find, and I want to be good so bad. want to be good so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.